Wow. Hunter said that Christ was what he was missing. He said that he's now living his best version of himself. Hallelujah, huh? Jeez, I want to live my best version every single day. Good morning, Word of Life. Um, my name is Nick Scholes. Uh, get the opportunity to bring the word with you this morning. And uh, I would say that I love these opportunities. However, uh, I feel like I'm going to start saying no. <laughs> Every time that I get asked or immediately following, my, my family goes through some horrific tragedy. And uh, this time that I'm standing up here is no different, unfortunately. Um, on Thanksgiving morning at 12 o'clock, 12.05, uh, my wife wakes me up after my mother-in-law had been fighting a battle for the last week in the hospital, and um, she went to heaven on Thanksgiving morning. And uh, <laughs> Pastor Tom asked me, do you want to continue doing this? Um, is it life-giving? And uh, it took a little while. I asked my wife because she is instrumental in every time I'm up here. Uh, and I said, yes, but it's not easy. And she said, there's only one thing that I can think about, and that's heaven. So that's what you better preach on. <laughs> and I hope that this is the first step in a redemptive plan that God has. Because the two songs that we sang this morning, one of them said, you never let me down, and another one said, you've never failed me yet. I'll tell you right now, in full transparency, he has felt like he has failed us. He's felt like he's left, let our family down. And that is me just simply being real. But, when you lose someone, you know that pain is excruciating. And two things have kind of come to mind as we've gone through this. I never knew life could be this painful. And if there really is a heaven, then I want to know what it's like. So over the course of 40 years being in and out of church... I've heard or have had very few conversations about heaven. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't for some reason or another. Maybe you guys had talked about heaven, but I have not had those conversations. But when you are faced with the realization of where your loved one is, you begin to ask different questions. I, see, I wondered why heaven's never talked about. I wonder if it's because of the fear of the unknown. I wonder, maybe we just don't know enough about heaven to talk about it intelligently. Is it morbid to talk about what happens when we die? Maybe we don't want to talk about it because we want to stay here. Maybe that's it, and we want other people to stay here. Maybe it's easier to talk about heaven as just a result rather than a preparation. Or maybe it simply hits on one of our greatest fears. And I know a lot of us say, well, I'm not fear, afraid of dying. Hmm. 
I'd probably question you on that. And if I don't question you on that, you're certainly afraid of someone close to you dying. So if that's the case, shouldn't talking about heaven be our very best tool in confronting our fear? That should be our very best tool. Or at least Dr. Phil would tell us it is our very best tool, right? He would. He'd say, you've got to confront your fear. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to confront our fear. In Philippians, we're going to use this as kind of our main scripture today. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 21, 20 and 21. And it says this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that... uh, You have given us the opportunity to come in here and hear your word this morning or to be on our couch or to be in our living room or to be standing in our kitchen cooking pancakes for our family. But we're hearing your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would pierce our hearts with exactly what you want to speak into it this morning. That you would show us what it means to be citizens of heaven. We thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. So about a month ago, a pastor talked about all the buts in the Bible. He said those buts are important to the preceding scripture because it nullifies whatever came before it. Right? So we should read before it. Before it, it says in verses 18 and 19, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I'm going to say that one more time. With minds set on earthly things. See, throughout this chapter, Paul, who is the author, is describing exactly what it means to live in direct contrast to having a citizenship in heaven. So then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So we need to look before that scripture to understand what the contrast is. And what he would say is it's confidence in the flesh. That's the contrast. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, which is right before this in the same exact chapter, it says, if anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You see, if anyone in the Bible should have confidence in this life, it should have been Paul. Says he was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You might ask, what does all that mean? Well, let's put it in our terms. Man, look how amazing my wife and I's relationship is. Isn't it good? We have perfectly dressed and behaved kids. 
our family smiles, laughs, and gets along on the holidays. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You can laugh. I have a well-paying job. I live in a great neighborhood. My yard rows are perfect after a good mow. And don't tell me, gentlemen, you don't love that perfect, that perfect yard after a good mow. My car is the nicest looking on the street. My kids are the best on the sports team. And, of course, our sports team is ranked number two in the state. I hope you know. My body is a temple of health and exercise. I would never defile it. My house looks like it came right out of a Pinterest photo. My spiritual life is second to none. My skin complexion looks so good in this Snapchat filter. Right? We don't actually say I'm going to put confidence in my flesh. That sounds way too egotistical. And none of us would want to sound like that. But all you have to do is spend five minutes on Facebook to hear, literally hear, the sound of confidence in the flesh. And it's deafening. It's deafening. And if you don't have Facebook, ask, some, ask a younger person in your life. And just say, can I look at this? And you'll see. So, maybe you thought, Nick, none of that applies to me because I don't feel like I have any confidence in my flesh. So this sermon's no good for you, right? Wrong. Maybe all you feel is pain and suffering. Or maybe it's not just all pain and suffering in your life, but you have that little bit of discontentment that kind of sits in the bottom of your soul. Kind of seems like we all have some level of this discontentment. And the reason I say that is our chat question this morning, right? Annie and and, um, Andy talked about it. We make New Year's resolutions, which means we don't think everything is perfect and right. So we we have just a little bit of discontentment in us. I wonder, have any of you felt that discontentment in your life before? You can raise your hand. I have. I'll raise both hands. And I would conjecture that over the past nine months, that's probably jumped 50-fold, right? That level of discontentment. Sometimes it can be small and quiet, but it's always there. Like the quiet hum of a computer. Just always in the back. It's a deep longing that you just can't seem to fill no matter what you do. And maybe you're able to fill it. But it's like putting duct tape over a leaky hole. It'll hold it for maybe just a second. But eventually, that filling will release. It's only temporary. It never fully seals it. And sometimes... That discontentment you fill with noble desires. Like, they're good desires. They're not bad. Greater success, increased joy, peace that surpasses all understanding. We know that, right? We talk about that in church. But no matter what, you see no possession, no ability, no thing, no relationship will ever fully fill that hole. So where does this ultimately leave us? If we can't fill a hole that keeps leaking, then you have no hope. (laughs) You have no hope. 
In Psalm 119.19, it says we are strangers on this earth. Or another translation says sojourners. It means that we're literally walking through this earth, that this place isn't our home. So if we are not home, then of course we have a longing for home. Our longing is for heaven. And in Ecclesiastes 3.11, this is why you have that, that longing. It says God, or he, meaning God, has put eternity into man's hearts. Your longing isn't in, to improve your living quarters, like I sometimes like to do. I always think that the next project is going to make something feel better in my house. Or make your kid the best on the team. It isn't to get more or to get bigger or to get shinier or to find the perfect relationship. Your longing is for heaven. See, I'm originally from Oregon, but moved out to Syracuse in 2003. And uh, my roommate out here was a guy named Phil. He was from Brockville, Ontario. Every year, Phil had to fill out a form to allow him to continue working at SU. Every year. He didn't get like a three-year visa. It was like a year-to-year -year visa that he had to get. And I can remember he'd submit it. And the month following it, it was always tense in our apartment. Because he had this great understanding that at any point in time, he could be removed from America. That he would lose his job and wouldn't be here. He had this great understanding that he was not a citizen of this place. And yet I went up to Canada with him a couple times. And when we crossed that border, it was tense even going to the border. Like the border was tense. It's like, man, I just, hope, I just want to get through. Even though he was going home. And so it was always tense. <laughs> but the second we get onto Canadian land, it was like he was the prime minister. No joke. All tension faded. There was no more discontentment of being in not his homeland. He was home. And he wanted to show everyone that. I hope you're seeing the parallels here with this story. Maybe you've been to another country, walking around and recognizing different cultures, customs, laws, norms, languages, and freedoms resulting from citizenship in that locale. My career brings me into a lot of interactions with people from other countries. And almost every single time I speak to a family from another country, the pride of their citizenship in that place is unbelievable. 100% of the times, the pride there. And almost always their citizenship is from what? It's from birth. That's how they get that citizenship, from birth. We've all heard of the term born again. If you're watching online, you've heard of it. Christians are proud of it. Non-Christians use it as a term to refer to us wacko Christians. And you can laugh, it's real. Those born-agains. I consider it a really important term. And the reality is it's important because it's in here. That's why we use it. And it says it in John 3, 3. It says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians, it says we are a new creation in him. You see, born again, 
saved. That is what happens when you accept Christ in. But really what's happening is that you were born into your citizenship in heaven. That's what's happening. Hallelujah, right? Amen. Hallelujah. You see, discontentment of the human heart exists because we aren't in the right place. Our citizenship can be found in only one place, and therefore it is that one place alone that we find citizenship, that we find peace and joy and acceptance and gratitude and perfect love. This isn't a codependent citizenship. This is a singular citizenship. You know the definition of peace? I actually preached a sermon um, several years ago on peace after another really difficult tragedy. Um, And I came to find out that uh, it's the completeness of our relationship with God. That's what true peace is, the completeness. It's to be made to complete. Earlier I talked about our discontentment can be a never-ending search for joy and peace. And you know what? We talk about that all the time. We want joy. We want peace. On this earth, it's probably not going to be attainable. And I'm sorry to tell you that. But our lives don't end. Let me, uh, this is so important. Our lives don't end when we die. They begin I know that's hard. And that might, that might sound super morbid to a lot of people, but it's the truth. And that is our blessed hope. One of the fundamental truths of our church is that we have a blessed hope. That is it. Our lives don't begin when we die. I'm sorry. Our lives don't end when we die. They begin. So if we are citizens of heaven then we need to know what our homeland looks like, right? What is heaven? How should we act and talk and walk? What rights and advantages and rules and expectations come with our inclusion? You see, upon our acceptance of this free gift and our rebirth into heavenly citizenship, we should have a deep longing for our homeland should eat away at us. We should have such a pride in where our citizenship is from. One of my family's favorite things to do, uh, it's every two years or four years if you go summer to summer or winter to winter, is to watch the Olympic opening ceremonies. Have you guys watched it? I know uh, a lot of us watch it. One of the coolest things is to watch the athletes that have absolutely no chance in winning a medal. But what are they so proudful of? What is, what is their exud, um, exuding? I don't know if that's a word. They, there's so much pride coming out of them waving that flag, their flag. It means so much to them. And I'm curious if we're proudful, if we have pride in our hearts for waving the flag of heaven. And maybe you don't know what that means. So let's find out what that means. Because that's what we need to do this morning. 
find out what it means to wave the flag for heaven. See, I have 10 points of heaven, and some of you might say, holy smokes, you have 10 points. And uh, a, a pastor friend that many of you know would probably tell me, and uh, my friend Andy that came up here said, well, if you have 10 points, you have no points, Nick. Darn it. But I think that they're so important that I have to tell you all of them, okay? <laughs> the first one is that it, heaven is living and active. Have you ever wondered what God looks like in heaven? In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, it says, God's appearance on the throne was like that of Jasper and Carnelian. Both were considered rare and precious stones, and in the Old Testament were found on the garments of the high priest. Guess who our high priest is? It's Jesus. Jasper had an appearance of a diamond, and its clarity represented purity and righteousness, while carnelian was fiery red, and it represented God's redemptive plan, perfectly linking God and Jesus together as one. Hallelujah. That's amazing. Amen. Got one. Over the throne was a green emerald symbolizing life. And over that, a rainbow symbolizing God's faithfulness to us, right? So what is God doing in heaven on that throne? Is he just sitting there waiting for us all to die? That's a good question, right? What is he doing? Is he just picking and choosing who he wants to heal and not? Who he wants to save and not? Who he wants to let die and not? If you aren't asking yourself those questions, then man, we need to, we need to do something different. We need to ask that. He's active. Here's what it says. Let me find it in my notes. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You might wonder, well, what does that have to do with God being active? Have you ever thought of a storm as being alive? Imagine the greatest storm. It's alive. He's active. And that activity should prompt us to think something of our own citizenship. It should prompt us to action. It should prompt us not to be hidden in our prayer closets or lock ourselves away from home or lock ourselves away in home. And I understand COVID requires certain things. I'm not saying that this is COVID or not, or trying to tell you to go out and preach the good news all over the place. But I am telling you that if he is active on our behalf, then we should be active in return. To live like overcoming citizens of heaven, readying ourselves for that blessed hope. The second point is that there's innumerable worshipers in heaven. Innumerable worshipers. In Revelations 5, 11 through 12, it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, I, I don't want you to get hung up on creatures and elders in this moment. Um, 
that would take us eight weeks to really dive into some of the things that Revelation has. What I want you to get caught up in is there are so many people, some of us have probably seen pictures of Woodstock, right? All you can do is see people worshiping the throne. Myriads and myriads means it's innumerable. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that you can't even count them. Heavenly angels all worshiping their king. So what is our response to that knowledge? If that's what our homeland looks like, then we are in the dress rehearsal, the waiting room to the grand stage. That's what I talked about to the worship team this morning. That we would usher in like we were worshiping God on the throne. I would guess some of you might love the idea of worshiping for endless hours all day, every day. Some of you might love that. Some of you love, uh, our creative arts team does an amazing job up here. But, and I say this but intentionally, that's not the truth for everyone. I have friends that want to show up after the music is done because they just want to listen to the sermon. They actually think the idea, and, and this is real, They think that the idea of sitting around a throne, worshiping the same person for all day, for every day, for all of time, all of eternity, doesn't sound like a good time. It doesn't for some people. How does that sound like a place that I want? And you know what? Thank you so much for thinking that and saying that and letting that be a thought in your heart. But you see, when you accept rebirth that God has for you, you begin to understand that worship is way more than just singing songs. It's about everything you do. You see, I think if you are struggling with this idea, you are in the perfect place right now to accept citizenship. Because worship is so much more than music. And our dress rehearsal should be recognizing how we can say, act out, sign, whatever it takes to say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Because you know what? If you truly believe that you are worshiping the person that gave you true life, you'd do whatever you could. My wife lost her mom who gave her life. She doesn't want to worship her, but she would do whatever it took to be with her. If you understood your birth as God giving you life, you would think about worship in a way different way, wouldn't we? The third one is citizenship will be diverse. All peoples are accepted without reservation into the kingdom of heaven. It says this in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. You see, if we recognize our own citizenship, it means recognizing all citizenship. And the importance of maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And you might say, okay, that's great, Nick. Why are you saying this? 
If you don't realize that our nation is the most divided it probably ever has been, then wake up, turn on something. We are a divided nation for many, many different reasons. And we, as the church, need to be the unifiers. Amen. Citizenship is diverse. The fourth point is full forgiveness is recognized. And I don't just say full forgiveness happens because full forgiveness happens when we accept Christ. But full forgiveness is recognized. That is such an important point. The culmination of Christ's sacrificial shed blood for me, for you, ushers us before our Heavenly Father where all of our sins will be washed clean and our forgiveness will be fully realized as we are clothed in white. And you know what's really cool? We're clothed in a white robe, a white robe that's washed clean by what? Red blood. By the blood of Christ. That's how our white robe is washed clean. The scripture actually says it that way. It's amazing, right? I think it's amazing. Isaiah 1, verse 18, it says, Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. You see, for those of us who have already accepted citizenship, we know that we have full forgiveness. But we don't always act like it. Right? We think that one transgression that keeps, you know, coming up. That one sin, that one habit. Man, I can't be forgiven. I've done way too much in my life. There's no way that I could be forgiven. I've had friends tell me that the church would fall in on itself if they walked through those doors, right? There's no way that they could be forgiven. I don't deserve forgiveness I'm not good enough. Well, let me tell you something. You are a citizen of heaven. Or you're either that or you have the opportunity to become one today. Which means you have a white robe draped over you that is providing full forgiveness for you. So, what should that do? It should prompt us to act and walk like we are fully forgiven. Point number five, God will dwell among us. Have you ever been away from a friend for a very long time, and when, if you, got, when you got off that plane or you saw them, all you wanted to do was spend time with them? You might think that this point is for us to see God, but the point is actually for God to see us. It says that the culmination in the New Jerusalem, which is not quite heaven, but um, is the culmination of heaven. Oh, I'm going to get us lost. <laughs> I don't want to go there. What it says is that God now then will dwell with us. And he wants to. It's the full culmination of him dwelling in the garden with Adam and Eve. He wants to be with us. He's waiting to be reunited with his people. God the Father wants to dwell with you. So if the culmination 
of his plan is realized when he dwells with his children, how should that cause us to act on this side of heaven? This is important. And it's going to, I don't want you to get lost, so I'm going to read it. I want you to be really, really key in on this. We must know and become known by the Holy Spirit, Spirit as he imparts power upon us. You see, the Holy Spirit was who Christ left behind for us. God the Father sent God the Son, who then left the Holy Spirit for us. And if you are new to this Holy Spirit, new to this, the Holy Spirit is access and comes into our hearts through our acceptance of Christ at salvation, and then is fully made complete in the realization and the use of gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives us to edify the body of believers. I know that was a lot, but that's so important. You see, remember, I just said that God was active. This is how we are to be active on this earth. So until we are reunited with our heavenly father and he is walking with us, our purpose is to use the gifts he has given us. That's our purpose. Number six, entry is not easy. It says the one who conquers will have this heritage. It says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And finally, Although I don't want to deal with this, I feel like I have to deal with it, and that's suffering. <clears throat> Gosh, this is the worst point. See, unfortunately, suffering is part of our citizenship. How might you ask? Seems crazy, right? If you accept citizenship, all of a sudden you have to suffer. In Romans 8, 16, 17, it says, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But this is tough, right? And this is probably the single greatest stumbling block for Christians and non-Christians alike. Why would a good God, my good God, allow this to happen? Why would he allow my son or daughter to die? Why would he take my mom too early? Why would he allow a child to go hungry or to starve, to go without food? He couldn't certainly allow that. And you know what? If he allowed that, there is absolutely no way I'm serving that God. That's what we say. And you know what? I'm not going to sit here and stand up here and tell you the exact why. And I'm not going to try to give you the, the correct Christian answer to it. I mean, I could. I could tell you that sin entered the world and that caused the fall, right? And I could tell you that if he stepped into every situation, that he couldn't then provide genuine love back to us. But that's empty in the middle of your pain and suffering. But here's what we have to realize. God... God went through the two greatest forms of suffering any of us could go through. As parents, we recognize the suffering of God the Father, what he had to go through giving up his one and only son. 
He knew he would have to fully die to shed the blood we deserved to lie in a cold tomb, enter the deepest parts of the spiritual realm, and be resurrected in three days for the full redemption of his people. But this was his son. I have a 13-year-old son. I have a 20-year-old daughter. I have an 11-year-old daughter. And there is no way. I can't even imagine this. And yet he did that. He allowed his son to experience that. Not the son suffering. Yes, that's horrible. But the suffering and pain of the father was even greater. And there's a second suffering he also went through that I think that we forget sometimes. It's a suffering that a child experiences when the abandonment of a father happens. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ cried out, let this cup pass from me, Heavenly Father. And it didn't pass from him. And then he was hung on a cross, beaten and bruised and hung on a cross. And for six hours, he sat on that cross. Six hours. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the pain of that as a child? Some of you maybe can. That abandonment is horrific. That suffering shouldn't happen. We get so frustrated with God because he allows suffering, but he went through the two toughest sufferings any of us could go through. And he didn't do it in some weird spiritual way. He came to earth. He came to earth and died for us. And he experienced those two forms of suffering. So in response to that, we, were, we have to recognize that our suffering is only on this side of heaven. Because what is next? It's point number seven. It's that death, pain, tears, and hunger don't exist. Hallelujah. I have to give some level of encouragement, and I'm sorry, but hallelujah. Huh? It doesn't exist. Thank you, Lord. So you know this point had to follow the suffering point, right? <clears throat> it's the good news. It brings the greatest point, the greatest level of comfort for my family right now. He said, and theologians argue back and forth whether you go to heaven right away or not. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It says, Christ is on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what paradise is right there? In the Greek, it means, it means garden. It means park. It's literally referring or symbolizing the Garden of Eden. He's bringing us back there. Read the, read the Garden of Eden. It is the most amazing sounding place ever. He's come full circle. Number eight is it's prepared for you. This is amazing. In John verse 14, 1 through 3, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. You hear that? He's preparing a place for you. You see, to put this in our terms, he paid the mortgage, and then he wrote your name on the deed. It's done. It's finished. It's prepared for you. 
Number nine, the tree of life exists. In Genesis, we hear about the tree of life, right? We hear about really two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God actually says, get them out of Eden because I don't want them to take taste of the tree of life because then they would be with us forever. So no more tree of life. <clears throat> so here, I, I wonder what we would do to find the tree of life. See, our world spends a lot of effort on that, doesn't it? We have anti-aging cream, cryogenics to try to freeze people. We do everything we possibly can to stay young. We put money, effort, and time into that. But as Pastor says, a fair amount, 100% of us are going to die. 100% of us will experience death of a loved one in our lives, and 100% of us will not be able to stop what is inevitable. But I'm telling you that the tree of life is not only attainable, there's fruit on it for you. There's fruit on it for me. God, thank you that you thought enough of me, enough of my sin to still produce fruit so that I may have eternal life. Can I tell you even some more amazing news about this eternal life? You're not just a citizen of heaven. You don't just have eternal life forever. You are an heir to the king of that country. Can you just take that in for a second? My youngest daughter, Gracie, uh, we love sappy Christmas movies and a lot of them talk about all of a sudden stepping into a country and you are a prince or a princess, right? Or how about a Disney movie? All the Disney movies deal with someone, some no one, all of a sudden becoming the prince and the princess. There's that knight in shiny armor, right? Our whole world is obsessed with it. We have a knight in shining armor and his name is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The 10th point. Thank goodness you're done, Nick. 10th point. We have a new body. So let's come full circle. Let's go back to that original verse. Chapter 3 in Philippians, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Many people choose to debate whether bodies will exist in heaven. For me, it appears to be a no-brainer. We're clothed with a robe means that there's got to be some shell. We have to eat of the tree of life, means that I've got to eat something. I kind of think that that's a pretty slam dunk that we're going to have a body in heaven. And to me, that's exciting that that my body will be new. But to my wife, to anyone who struggles with health problems, That's the only thing that they need to know about heaven. 
God is asking you, he's asking us to endure just a little while longer, to use the vessel, however imperfect it may be, to do the work he started on the cross. You are capable. When you don't think you are, you are strong. When it feels like you have no strength left, you are mighty. When the might feels squeezed out of you, you will stand and fight because he has given you his weapons, chiefly among them this that is called the sword to fight the battle he already won for you. So as we close, I want you to hear something. Our main scripture today was out of the book called Philippians. A letter written to people at the church in the city of Philippi. You know who started the church? Or at least it implies in Acts, a woman named Lydia started the church in Philippi. She was listening to a sermon from Jesus. And it says, the Lord opened her heart. You see, I believe that's exactly what is happening right now in this place, in your home, standing in your kitchen, on your couch, wherever it might be. He's opening your heart. He is digging into that deepest part of you and filling the hole because you're starting to begin to recognize that your citizenship doesn't belong here. The reason you have that discontentment and that hole is because you're trying to fill it with earthly things. Remember the but, they were living like earthly citizens. They were filling it with earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. You see, the opening of our heart is the first step in accepting Christ into it. And like I said, it's as, as simple as saying, God, I'm a sinner, I accept you. But this isn't only for that individual today. It's for all of us because he's opening all of our hearts. He opened Lydia's heart and she was a worshiper of God, it said. He's opening it for healing. He's opening it for you to overcome grief. He's opening it for all of us to allow us to fully recognize that our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die on a cross for us, that you went through the two greatest forms of suffering that we could ever go through to allow us, yes, to be born again through a new life, but to ultimately be rebirthed in you, in a citizenship that we have in heaven. Lord, I pray that this that this conversation that we had today, that this talk would prompt us to begin to have conversations about our homeland.
that we would talk about our citizenship in heaven with such a fondness, with so much pride, that we would be waving a banner of heaven. Yes, I'm a citizen of heaven. I am proud to call that my homeland because I get all of these amazing things that come along with it. Hallelujah, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.